to another episode of No Trash, Just Truth. No Trash, Just Truth is a podcast of Proverbs 910 Ministries. We're your hosts, Rose Spiller and Chris Paxson. Welcome back. In case you haven't noticed, the titles we've been picking in this series are an effort to try to help you remember something about each minor prophet. For this week's episode, we could have picked from a plethora of books, movies, songs throughout history that match up with the theme of Hosea. But the title of Taylor Swift's song, You Belong With Me, sums it up, even if you don't know the song and even if you don't like Taylor Swift. That's exactly right. The song is about one-sided love. Girl meets boy. She knows everything about him, his likes, his dislikes, the good, the bad. She knows his needs. She's there for him when he's happy. She's there for him when he's sad. And she truly loves him. And he is more than happy to have her as a friend. But he chases after someone else, the cheerleader, the one who wears the short skirts and the high heels. And yet the girl, that's his friend in his opinion, still loves him and wants his love in return. One-sided love started with our first parents and their relationship with God. God created Adam and Eve. He gave them the best of everything, knew what they needed, provided abundantly for them, and was in a perfect relationship with them. But they wanted more. In fact, they wanted the one thing that would not be good for them. In fact, it would be deadly. It was deadly. Exactly. The prophet Hosea lived in the northern nation of Israel, although scholars are divided where or which tribe he came from. The name Hosea is derived from the same Hebrew root word as Joshua and Jesus, which is Hosea, which means salvation. And that's a very appropriate name that goes along with the message that God gives him. Hosea's prophecy is to his fellow countrymen, the Israelites. He first received the word of God under the reign of Jeroboam II, which was a time of political and economical prosperity for the nation. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. During Jeroboam II's reign, they had territorial expansion that rivaled King David and King Solomon's. The rich lived in big, beautiful houses, but prosperity only brought on more sin. Imagine that. Imagine that. Because they were prospering materially and militarily, Israel thought that God was pleased with them. They looked at the blessings as a sign that everything was good with God. But God wasn't pleased. Hosea 4.2 says, There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds. And bloodshed follows bloodshed. That sounds pretty bad, right? Yeah, it sounds a lot like in the other prophet books who are contemporaries where they think they're getting rewarded on the day of the Lord and Joel and Amos put them in their place. I know. These people had built their wealth largely on the backs of the poor and needy. Imagine that, Rose. Hmm. Not like today. Nothing like today. And on top of it, they worshiped all the little G-gods of the Canaanites, especially Baal which was requiring sacrificing their children in fire. In our daily reading, we're in the prophets. We're in some minor prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. And I am amazed how over and over God charges them with sacrificing their own children. I mean, 
It was an absolute abomination. We just can't imagine. People are sacrificing their children through abortion today, but you know what? It's nothing new under the sun. They did it differently. But back then they were sacrificing for luck or to, to make the gods happy. Today, they're sacrificing their children for convenience and financial stability. Yep. So God charges them, the Israelites, through the prophet Hosea. And he says that they have, and I'm quoting, a lack of knowledge and they are forgetting the law of their God. And that's Hosea 4, 6. So here's what one commentary says about both Israel and Judah during this time. And I'm quoting, an urban mentality developed with luxurious dwellings and ornate appointments. That's the end of the quote. Now, living in cities isn't a bad thing, but for them, moving to a more urbanized mindset likely helped them in moving away from God's law. The Old Testament law not only had regulation for worship, it was also full of laws that told the people how to treat others in a just and loving manner. Many of the Old Testament laws had to do with land distribution and how to justly and righteously provide for those without land, namely the poor, the widows, the farmers, and the Levites, which were the priests. Yeah. And if that goes from your sight, then you have to ask yourself, you know, how long am I going to remember the laws of the Lord and how I should treat the poor? So I think yeah. maybe ha- being urbanites did have something to do with it. Now we don't have that now, but it was a good reminder of how to take care of the poor and needy when they stayed on the land as they should. Israel's prosperity took place during a time when the Assyrians who were to their north were at a relatively low point militarily. But in 745, A new and very capable king came to power in Assyria. And we talked about this in one of the former weeks too. His name was Tiglath-Pileser and he was followed by other very capable kings. So Assyria's power was getting stronger. God's raising them up. Yep, but Israel is getting weaker. Hosea's prophecy started during the reign of Jeroboam II, like we said, but the prophecy seems to suggest that most of it came after Jeroboam II's son, Zechariah, took the throne in Israel in 753 BC. From then on, it was a rocky time in Israel's history. The first chapter of Hosea's prophecy gives a big picture overview of what's going to happen. God's first words to Hosea were, go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And that's the end of that verse. Not exactly the Proverbs 31 woman. (laughs) Not exactly. Now, many people have taught that God forced Hosea to marry a prostitute. But the word whoredom doesn't mean prostitute most times when it's used. In fact, it's a broad term that can mean a lot of types of sexual immorality. What it meant for Hosea was that he was going to marry a woman who would be unfaithful to him. Hosea's marital relationship was going to be a metaphor for God's marital relationship with Israel. When God chose the nation of Israel, she became his bride. The pattern of Hosea's relationship with his wife, Gomer, was marriage, unfaithfulness, divorce, and then restoration. And that's the pattern of God's relationship with his bride, Israel. The sin of adultery is used to express Israel's unfaithfulness to God in its worship of false gods. We see it over and over in the Old Testament, especially in the prophetic books. 
idolatry was rampant in Israel and in her sister country, Judah. Yeah. And we shouldn't assume that Hosea was to go out looking for some loose type of woman. The explanation is not what Hosea should look for in a wife. It's what's going to happen in Hosea's marriage. Like God, Hosea knew ahead of time that his bride was going to be unfaithful to him. Not something you want to go into marriage knowing, but no, it had to be hard. It had to be really hard saying, okay, go marry someone who's going to be unfaithful and cause you a lot of heartache. But for Hosea, things get even worse. Now, Hosea loved his wife and it pained him when she committed adultery. According to the book of Hosea, Hosea went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. So this tells us that Hosea's first child really was his own. The other two are going to be suspect. Like I said, things get worse for Hosea. Hosea 2.4 says they are children of whoredom. Yeah, it sure doesn't sound like he's the father, although he does act as a father to them. And Hosea and Gomer did not need to buy themselves a baby name book. God is going to tell Hosea what the couple's children are going to be named. God's using their names metaphorically. The first child was to be named Jezreel, the city of Jehu's bloody brutality. The Valley of Jezreel was the site of many bloody battles. And it's also going to be where this nation itself will fall when God takes it down. Gomer conceived two more times. And like we said, the paternity was a little suspect. Her second child is a daughter. And the instructions to Hosea are, and I'm going to quote scripture, call her name, No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. That's Hosea 1, 6 to 7. And they have a third child. And if naming your daughter, no mercy wasn't enough, this time they have a son. And here's what the Lord says. Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. And that's Hosea 1, 8. Yeah. The first three chapters of Hosea are pictures of Hosea's marriage to Gomer. They're biographical. Now, God can be pretty graphic at times. And one example of that is Hosea 2, verses 2 to 3, which say, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Pretty graphic. You, you think God's angry? I think so. The northern nation of Israel was the mother. That's who God's talking about. Hosea is calling to the faithful ones in Israel. There were some, and he's telling him, plead with the unregenerate, the sinful people in their nation, and call them to repentance. God was threatening to divorce the whole nation by withdrawing his presence and raising up an army to conquer them. But not yet. There are three therefores in chapter two. While Gomer, which is a metaphor for Israel, is chasing after her lovers, God says, and I'm quoting, therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them 
and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. So not being able to find her lovers, she'll return to her first husband. Why? Not because she truly loves them or even appreciates them, but because she realizes it was better with him. She was better off with him than the state she's currently in. Yeah, and there's a big problem with that. Gomer forgot who truly loved her and who was actually providing for her. Chapter 2, verse 5 says she went after her lovers who give her bread and water, wool, flax, oil, and drink. So she's giving her adulterous lovers, these idols she worships, credit for her provisions, for everything she has. This is a picture of Israelite idolatry. They worshiped Baal and Asherah, fertility gods of the Canaanites, who we've mentioned many times in our different series. Israel and Judah had forgotten that it was God who provided those things for them. And I can't help but thinking back in Exodus with the golden calf when the people said, when Aaron said, here is your golden calf that led you out of Egypt. Yeah, exactly. It just keeps repeating itself. Yeah. We should take note that Gomer went after her lovers. She pursued them. So Israel and the people of Judah always seem to be looking for ways to add to their worship of Yahweh for provision of their needs. Like we said, back in Exodus, it's exactly what they did. They told Aaron, we want a God. They told Samuel, we want a king. They're always going after it. Yep. Just think of what a slap in the face that is to God. They didn't trust his provisions for them. And we're all guilty of this. Human nature doesn't change. It's all cyclical. And if we're worrying about something in our life that we don't have, then we are guilty of this. Church people are not immune to actually doing pagan things to make themselves feel better. Chris, we see this all the time. Oh, I know. I, You know, I was just last week trying to get some people in a, a chat to understand that anointing your house with oil in order to keep demonic forces away was tantamount to witchcraft. I said, you're you're making a potion and ritualistically putting it around your house as a form of protection. I mean, that's pagan. Yep. And it's adding to the word of God something that's not prescribed or needed for God's people. And I got so many comments back about people trying to defend it. And I just kept saying, give me the scripture. And the only one I got was about the high priest using anointing oil to anoint the holy of holies and the stuff in there. And I'm like, uh, yeah, that's not, I, I, then I had to explain what that was, but it goes right along with what God says here. My people perish for lack of knowledge. Yeah. And I'll even go yeah. so far to say anyone who's walking around their house, like that ridiculous movie, was it the war room denouncing Satan, telling Satan to get out of your house. That's a pagan thing. That's not biblical. And I'm it, sorry if that ouches anybody, but it's going to ouch some people truthful here. Yeah, exactly. So yep. we said there were three therefores in chapter two. The first one was I'm going to hedge her up so she can't get to her lovers. The second therefore shows that Hosea is going to prove that he's the one who provides all her needs, not her lovers. God's going to do the same with Israel. How's he going to do that? He's going to take away all the things she's relying on and desiring. He's going to strip Israel bare something that her lovers won't be able to do anything about. It's going to show her how impotent 
idol worship really is and how worthless it all is. Yeah. And the third, therefore, speaks of the husband bringing her into a time of wilderness in order to speak tenderly to her to bring her to repentance. In chapter three, God tells Hosea to go redeem Gomar, who has now been enslaved. She's in the slavery to sin position that we all are at one point. Hosea, and I'm quoting here, bought Gomer back from slavery for 15 shekels of silver and nine bushels of barley. Now, while chapter one to three were about Hosea and his marriage, it's used as a picture of God and his bride. But then chapters four through 14 are all about unfaithful Israel and Judah and their faithful husband, the Lord. In the book of Hosea, God uses a court setting to illustrate accusation and guilt. We see this in a few books, especially prophetic books. Chapter four lays out the accusations against Israel and Judah. Unfaithfulness to the covenant, lack of knowledge about the Lord, something that's leveled against the priests, the prophets, and the people. Idolatry, reliance on other nations for support instead of relying on God. And there's more accusations. The nation of Judah is named right along with Israel. Again, we've seen this in a few books. Yes, we have. And though the punishments start coming, they're unrepentant. As we said earlier, Hosea's prophecy started during a time of military and financial prosperity. Hosea prophesied of coming judgment. And God not only gave the people vocal warnings from him, he gave the people ample warning shots over the bow, so to speak. Zechariah, who took the throne during the good times at the beginning of Hosea's prophecy or toward the beginning of it, was assassinated six months after he took the throne by a man named Shalom. And that guy named Shalom then took the throne for himself. He reigned for one month and then he was assassinated by a wicked man named Menahem, who succeeded him. There were six incursions by Assyria into Israel during the time of Hosea's prophecy. That's not a pretty time for people living in the land. No. One of those incursions happened during Menahem's reign. And what did he do? He turns around and extracts silver from his fellow Israelites and put them under tribute. His son, Pekahiah, reigned for two years after that. Then he was assassinated. And if you go through the kings, it is amazing in Judah, the southern nation, the succession is more father to son. In the northern nation, it's this one murdered this one and took over, this one murdered this one and took over. So Pekahiah was assassinated by one of his chief officers and 50 men from Gilead. That chief officer, Pekah, he reigned for 20 years and it was during his reign that God heavily started using the nation of Assyria to bring devastation onto the northern nation of Israel. King Hoshea was the last king of Israel. Hoshea attacked Pekah and took over in 732 BC. He reigned for nine years, the last three of which Assyria laid siege to Samaria and brought the final blow to Israel, took them into captivity. Yep. After seven chapters of God laying out his case against Israel, in Hosea chapter 11, we get an expression of God's love for Israel. And here's how it starts. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And I want to stop there for a moment and just point out that first verse is a messianic prophecy because 
Jesus was taken into Egypt as a child and then God called them back out of Egypt. But right. let's go on from there. Yeah, at that point, it was an already not yet because he had taken them out of Egypt, but he was yep. going to take Jesus out. You're right. It was an already and a not yet. I'll read more. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. And that's Hosea 11, 1 to 4. So these verses should break our heart. This is God, God, the almighty, holy father, talking about the heartbreak of one-sided love with his people. Yeah, it is heartbreaking. It should break our hearts because we all transgress God's law, even as Christians, and it should break our hearts and make us love him more for how much he loves us and forgives us. As we said earlier, the first chapter of Hosea's prophecy gave us a big picture overview of what was going to happen. Chapter one starts with God having no mercy on his people, but it ends with these comforting words. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And that's Hosea 1 verses 10 and 11. This is the promise of a future restoration of God and his bride. One big difference between God and any person who would be dealing with a spouse like this is that God didn't permanently divorce his bride. Any other man would have walked away and never looked back. But God didn't permanently divorce his bride. Just as Hosea was told to redeem his wife and restore their relationship, God did redeem and restore his own bride. Hosea 14.4 says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. And Chris, if that doesn't show the mercy and love of God, I don't know what does. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And boy, do we not get what we deserve. Absolutely. God brought his people back from captivity. Jerusalem and the temple were eventually rebuilt. And the temple was never the former glory that it was before, but it was never meant to be. It was never meant to be that glorious because it always pointed to the ultimate glorious thing. And that's our redeemer, Jesus Christ. He's the only one who could truly redeem all of his people and Old Testament and new. All of those who had faith counted as righteousness are the bride of Christ, the, the church, big C church. And praise God that though we are often unfaithful over and over and over again, God never, ever is. And while we chase after better things or things we think are better things, God is always faithful and he never, ever lets go of us. Yeah. And like Gomer, those better things are just going to lead us into slavery. Yeah. They're actually lesser things. Absolutely. In the acronym TULIP, there, the P is perseverance of the saints. And that's the point of that, that if we could lose our salvation, we would. 
we can only persevere because God's the one persevering us. That's why some people change it to preservation of the saints. We just had a comment on our one of our posts on this. And that's what I said, because God's the one who does it. We could never persevere on our own. We need God to do it. We need God to preserve us because he's the only one who truly loves us. Yeah, it's still in some ways a one-sided love. But I think the more and more we speak this message of love and Hosea to ourselves, the more we will learn to love God as we should. Amen to that. And that's a great place to end today. Have a blessed day, everybody.